You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that recommends that you stay in school, especially if Guy Gardner is your substitute. Hello and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, two characters that we're actually going to be covering in the book this week. Hi everyone, my name's Sean Engel and I'm your host for the show, and today on the show we're going to be covering part one of a three-part storyline starting in Green Lantern number 83, which has Kyle dealing with his first, well, really uh, impressive villain to take on. Yes, we've had Graven and Sonar and Dr. Polaris, but this is the villain that actually kind of sticks around. In fact, this villain is actually a part of the Star Sapphire Corps, as far as I know, in the uh, current uh, Green Lantern comics in the New 52. So uh, a character that Ron Mars introduced actually carried on. So that's kind of neat. But also, we're going to be covering an issue of Guy Gardner. Well, not technically an issue of Guy Gardner, because sadly that's gone by the wayside, but we're going to be covering a book that has Guy Gardner in it. This book is Detention Comics, and, well, it's kind of a stay-in-school polemic about, well, staying in school and not doing drugs and being a good kid. It's got three stories in it, uh, one of them written by Denny O'Neill about Robin, another one written by Ron Mars about Superboy, but the one I'm more interested in is the one written by Ruben Diaz covering Guy Gardner. And we're going to get to that, as well as your letters, as soon as I play these promos for some fantastic podcasts that I think you all should be listening to. But as soon as we get done with that, I will be getting into my coverage of Greenlander number 83. <laughs> Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain? violate the treaty captain sir someone is stealing the enterprise what are you scratching at <laughs> humans make illogical decisions Every episode of the classic original TV series in randomly selected order on the second Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait, be right back. I need my Avengers omnibus. Uh, where did I put that thing? While Bill looks for that, let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spataro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner... Just say his name three times in an email and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah, sorry, sorry. I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there. Ow! 
Oh, put Cap Shield there. <laughs> anyway, we're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues, or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers. Hey Ben, move that funny-looking hammer, would you? It's it's on that book, and I can't move it. Sure thing, Dad. Where do you want it? Uh, over there somewhere. No, watch out for the repulsor. Ow! Oh! Ah! Ah! Don't tell your mother. We like to call it Avengers Spotlight. I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die, They Just Get Reassembled and Sent to Another Earth. What? Too wordy? Who knows what we'll cover, and who might stop by? So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes and some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvac Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree-Skrull War, and... Oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna Saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready? <sighs> hey, wait a minute. This is the book of the Vashanti. <sighs> Forget it. See you soon, everybody. My favorite Avengers are D-Man and Green Lantern. Say goodnight, Scott. Goodnight, Scott. And we are back. And before I get to email, I'd like to say a little something. Um, I'm recording this a little bit out of order. I already had about two episodes recorded when I got the call from Bo Smith to do the interview with him. And it was such a great interview and it was such a fun time that I actually posted it before the uh, two episodes that I had in the can. So... This feels a little bit out of order, so when you listen to episodes uh, 81 and 82, you'll hear me mentioning things that I'm hoping are going to happen, and, and they actually did happen. But if you haven't listened to it yet, I hope that you go and check out my interview with Bo Smith that I did along with Thomas DJ. It was an incredible time. Bo Smith was just a wonderful man. He talked a lot about his run on Guy Gardner Warrior. He talked about some of the things he wanted to do, and he laid down some amazing things that I thought that should have happened. He should have had the opportunity to do this. And again, my thanks to not only Thomas for coming on and helping me with that, because honestly, I was nervous as all get out with trying to interview Bo, but it all went smoothly and especially a great amount of thanks to Bo Smith because he was just wonderful, very giving of his time. And he, he made my day. He made my day by doing that interview. A genuinely nice person, such an underrated writer, needs to have a lot more work, definitely. But just to let you know, this is why those issues or those episodes kind of may seem a little out of order. But let's go ahead and skip all that and go ahead and look at the email bag and see what kind of letters we have for this week. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> And our first letter is from a man that some say gained his power from a rogue nuclear explosion, and that if you lined up all of his Godzilla action figures end-to-end, they would circle the Earth at least seven times. All we know is, he's called Luke Giaconetti. Andrew Leyland does that so much better. Anyway, Luke writes here, Final Night, a comic book series or heavy metal concept album, you make the call. I'm going to say comic book series because I don't know whether it uh, could be a final countdown, I guess, but. Never a bad time for putting Europe into the podcast. There you go. Anywho, Luke Jackanetti writes in saying, Sean, Final Night is an oddball story. It always sounded like a cool concept for a story. I remember seeing the print ads, but I was not reading much DC at the time. Pretty much the Superman books, Flash, both which had tie-ins, and some Vertigo stuff. 
At the time, I didn't have much money to spend on event books, so I passed on it. So I'll have to look for this series in my travels. Uh, definitely, Luke. It's uh, really good. Like uh, J. David Weir and I said, it's a really underrated, you know, very one-and-done, not-drawn-out storyline that is actually pretty epic. So, yeah, if you have a chance to find it in, like, the dollar bins or the quarter bins or anything like that, go seek it out. Well worth it. Luke continues, I'm trying to remember what the deal with Lex Luthor was at this point. He had destroyed a good portion of Metropolis back, back in Action Comics number 700 as part of a failsafe when his clone body was dying, and then he got a new body during Underworld Unleashed. I want to say that Lex was thought dead and that Contessa was the public face of Lex War, something like that anyway. Yeah, I think David kind of confirmed that. Uh, it sounds about right. I'm certain Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor will eventually be getting that in their coverage of the uh, Superman books over at From Christ to Crisis. Luke finishes up saying, Knights was a great game. The Saturn remains a technically more powerful system than the PlayStation, but was notoriously harder to program for, hence why the games were it tended to be the in-house ones. Knights was packed along to the Sega 3D analog controller, and was pretty much the vanguard of the 3D free-flying games in the US. Alas, the Saturn was not going to win the console war of that generation, and Sony was on its way. Also, the Dreamcast was Sega's last console, not the Saturn. Not uh, that's correct, I misspoke there. I know, I still have both of them, and my Genesis, and Master System, and Game Gear. <laughs> Luke's a Sega fanatic there. Thanks for the show, Luke says finally, looking forward to the conclusion of Final Night, Luke. Well, I hope you enjoyed it, Luke, uh, as this is uh, being read a couple of weeks after I finished up Final Night, but uh, I'm glad to get your letter in. Thank you very much for writing. And our next letter this time out is actually kind of a recent one. It comes from Michael Bradley, and it's about the Bo Smith interview. It's entitled, Bo Knows. Michael writes, Sean, I wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed your interview with Bo Smith. Not that just one of the guys isn't a thoroughly enjoyable to listen to each and every episode. It most certainly is, and I feel bad I don't say so more often. Well, I appreciate that. And I try and make this indexing show kind of fun and kind of interesting, and it's kind of hard to gauge whether or not I'm actually getting the fun across, and I appreciate you writing and letting me know this. Uh, uh, now that I'm on Facebook, I'm getting a little bit more sort of instant feedback on what's going on, so I'm I'm happy to hear that you're still enjoying it. Michael continues, but this episode was especially great. Rarely have I heard a non-professional interviews with comic book creators that have been so easy to listen to and yielded such insight. It's a testament to both Smith's willingness to be candid, as well as your and Thomas's ability to conduct the interview without turning into the famous Chris Farley skit. Yeah, I so worried I was just going to turn into that, you know, ridiculous fanboy and go, oh, you know that run on Guy Gardner that you did, Mr. Smith? <laughs> that was cool. Thankfully, it didn't turn out that way, and I think that's all to be attributed to Bo Smith. Michael continues, it was great getting a behind-the-scenes look at how Smith approached the series and the character, as well as a peek into the ideas that he had for Guy and other characters were he given more time in the series. It speaks a lot to Smith's professionalism that he would put so much thought into how to take a character who, let's be honest, was more often than not just treated as a joke or one-note personality, and seriously tried to logically develop him into one of the heavy hitters of the DC Universe. It makes you wonder what could have been, he says in quotes, had the series been published at the time when A, it could have been more closely tied to the Green Lantern mythology, and B, not saddled with the unfortunate 90s stigma. I fully agree. I think I think the Guy Gardner Warrior run would have been more well-received had it not been plopped down right in the middle of the whole image look. And uh, as Bo said on there... Uh, especially with artists like Mark Campos, who was a, a very image-styled artist, it kind of fell into that category, and I think people dismissed it being a very 90s-centric image-type book simply because of Mark Campos's artwork. No failing him, I mean, that's what he did, and that's kind of what I think they wanted him to do, but the stories were just so much better in, than what we saw from a lot of the image-type stuff. I... I'm particularly thinking of some of the young blood issues that really had no plot whatsoever, and Bo Smith's writing was so much better. Michael finishes up. He said, I was also pleasantly surprised to hear that Jeff Johns had consulted, consulted with Smith on how to ease the transition that they were making with Guy around the time of Green Lantern Rebirth. 
whether Johns' motivation was to do right by the character, the fans, or a creator whose work he enjoyed, or some combination of the three, I think that it says a lot about Johns. I do wonder how much of the discussion actually ended up in the comic, though, because Guy's change from Warrior to Green Lantern in that series was quick, to say the least. You know, I agree, that was one of the things that when I heard uh, Bo mention it, that uh, Jeff Johns had contacted him about the transition uh, for Guy Gardner, I was flabbergasted, and uh, it actually gives me a lot more respect for the writer, Jeff Johns. Uh, the fact that he actually took the time out to contact him and you know, let him know that this is what we were going to do, and if he approved of it, was really says something. So, I mean, Jeff Johns, I'm not down on him, but this definitely raises him up in, uh, in my view. Finally, uh, Michael says, to wrap up, I'll just say again that I enjoyed the interview. As I said, I loved hearing the behind-the-scenes information, but also, Smith seems like a genuinely nice and gracious guy. I'm happy you got to tell him how much the book means to you and let him know how much you enjoy it. It's frequently overlooked book from the often-dismissed era. We as podcasters cut up and have fun with our shows and the books we cover. Our subject matters might not be everyone's cup of tea, and Lord knows a lot of the material we cover is butt of derision and chokes, but when we can use our shows to pass our thoughts on to the book's creators and let them know that, yes, these books are important, that's what it's all about. Yours truly, the manliest man in comic book podcasting, well, at least on Bizarro World, Michael Bradley. Michael, I think you nailed it. That is exactly what I wanted to do with this. And yeah, it is an overlooked piece. It is an overlooked gem in sort of a sea of mediocrity in the 90s. And I think we, I think that not only were we able to get some great stuff from Bo and a lot of the things that he mentioned in the interview, but uh, I think we also told him that, yes, what he did actually had some effect on some people and actually was looked on. You know, he, he said it, he said it in the interview that sometimes it's not about the paycheck and to hear him say that he was you know, touched by uh, the fact that we enjoyed it so much and that we got some of the things that he did in the book just made me feel all the better. Uh, Bo Smith is an amazing person, and I can't promote his work any higher. Just just awesome. But that does it, it for emails. Uh, actually, let me go ahead and promote one more person, Michael Bradley. Right now, he's not in doing any podcast. He used to do the Thrilling Adventures of Superman over at GreatCrypton.com, and he also did Green Lantern's Light along with J. David Weeder and Jeffrey Taylor. But now he's kind of busy with work, but I do believe he's still doing the Siegel and Schuster blog, so definitely go check out GreatCrypton.com and give Michael some love there. But that does it for emails, so it is time now to get into my coverage of Green Lantern number 83. Green Lantern number 83 was cover dated February 1997 and released on December 4th, 1996. Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics was the information gathering system or source for that. Cover price was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title was Retribution Part 1. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler Daryl Banks, inker Romeo Tangal, colorist Pamela Rambo, letterer Chris Eliopoulos, armed Eddie Braganza, and dangerous Kevin Dooley. Sporting a pair of guns that would make even Cable say, Whoa, 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 tone it down some. Green Lantern Kyle Rayner tells a group of Ukrainian arms smugglers to put down the weapons and they won't get hurt. Either the language barrier or their gen general evilness causes them to disregard the warring and a borat amount of fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, breaks out on the waterfront. Kyle goes full bore on the criminals, but with the weapons he creates, he takes out the thugs non-lethally, but maybe not painlessly. Finishing the job, Kyle sinks the ship that was carrying the contraband and leaves the cleanup for the Coast Guard. As Kyle heads home, he witnesses a falling star, which he makes a wish on for having an uneventful rest of the night upon. Seeing his landlord, Bredu, closing up shop, Kyle opts out of grabbing some coffee and heads to the one place a hip 20-year-old in the 90s would be hanging out, a techno club. Kyle starts up dance with a 9 Inch Nails t-shirt wearing Susan Powder analog, and the innocent boogie is interrupted by, well, an amply chested woman in an outfit that would make a Reese's Hooker Gem outfit look conservative. The dark-skinned temptress tells Kyle that she wants him, as she engages in dance routine that usually would require you to pay her $20. But Kyle is faithful to Donna and tells the tan twerker that he's had enough fun. 
this doesn't go well as the woman activates something on her wrist which transforms her outfit to a Boris Vallejo space warrior replete with a giant spear, which she uses to blast Kyle out of the club. Out of sight of the onlookers, Kyle changes the Green Lantern and nabs the weapon from the alien attacker. Kyle asks who she is and the warrior monologues that her name is Fatality and what she does is kill Green Lanterns. Saying that she'll just wait for Kyle's ring to run out of power to kill him, Fatality presses the attack against Green Lantern. But what she doesn't know is the whole 24-hour thing is so last week, and Kyle has power to spare. So, discretion being the better part of not getting killed, she beats Cheeks for parts unknown. With the knowledge of a nutjob going around after former Green Lanterns, Kyle heads to the one who might not be able to put up a fight, Jon Stewart. As Kyle enters Jon's apartment, he warns the former Lantern of the crazy chick who has a mad on for GLs. John asks what went on between the two, and Kyle relates the fight, her retreat, and the statement that she'll take away something that he needs. Stunned by the statement, John asks Kyle why he didn't make the connection. While he came here to warn about Fatality's attempt on his life, Fatality has gone to Kyle's apartment to steal his Green Lantern battle. As I said at the beginning, I think the major thing that we're getting out of this book is the introduction of the character Fatality, which is one of the Cal Rayner rogues gallery that'll actually stick around a lot longer than some of the ones that we've already seen. In fact, like I said, I think Fatality is still a member of the Star Sapphire Corps, so she's still around in the New 52, so something Ron Mars created actually made it through unscathed. So that's awesome to see. But let's go ahead and go through the book, uh, starting off with the cover, which is a decent enough looking cover from Banks and Tank Hall, with Cal getting stepped on by, obviously, you get to know in the book, it's the boot of fatality. But one of the, I don't know, neat or maybe not so neat things is the coloring on the boot. Uh, it looks like they're using some of the mid-90s digital coloring on there, and they're trying to give the boot a sort of textured, metallic feel, and it's interesting, but it's this early stage of computer coloring that I guess nowadays just looks kind of off. It might have just been better if they colored it normally, but it's dynamic, I guess. But on page one, I really wish Paul Spataro or Bill Robinson were here to do a little Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation because even Kyle thinks that he's Arnold on this with the guns that are just wholly ridiculous. There's giant hand cannons and it is 90s excess to its best and but at least it's sort of self-referential excess and kind of fun while it's at it page four panel four there's kind of a snide you don't bring a boxing glove to a gunfight caption here which i guess is sort of a swipe at the old green lantern regime where Hal would usually use a boxing glove to uh take out his criminals I don't know if it's necessarily snarky or, you know, pointing fun at the previous Green Lanterns, but it is here and it it does kind of feel that way. I know that Kyle is more into creating abstract, uh, more artsy anime style and not trying to copy himself, but it is one of those things I just don't really enjoy, cutting down the previous people by saying that their stuff or what they did wasn't as cool as what we're doing. And, uh, maybe it's just me reading too much into it. Page five is Kyle's basically taking out this group of Uzbekistani mafia. He's mentioning that all of his weapons, even though they're being fired from giant guns, are non-lethal. In fact, the bl even the blades that he uses are non-lethal. I mean, they hurt when they hit people, but they don't kill. And I don't know if this is something that's being set up for later story arc or whether or not it's just something that, or something that's always been part of the Green Lantern Corps. I know in the Jeff Johns era, they pretty much state that no Green Lantern can kill until the whole thing with the Snestra Corps War, and they were given the license to kill. So maybe it's just that. Then on page six, panel five, this is kind of a jerk move. Even though Kyle has taken out all the criminals, Lon lethally, and has left them there for the police to come and pick him up, 
He also decides to go sink the ship that had, oh, probably evidence on it of their crime. So now the ship is sitting at the bottom of the, whatever the Hudson or whatever port that, you know, would be in New York City. I don't know New York City. I'd have to ask, you know, Paul or Thomas about that. But, uh, yeah, it just seems kind of a jerk move to sink the ship with a giant cannon. And then, oh, Port Authority, <laughs> come in and clean it up. I did most of the job. <laughs> you spend months trying to fish this boat out of the river. Wow. On page 7, panel 3, we get the shooting star coming out of the sky. And I'm pretty certain that that's Fatality's ship. But it's not mentioned in the story. And since there's really nothing else to indicate that it would be something other than Fatality's ship, I'm just going to go with that's what it was. And then moving on to pages 8 and 9. So instead of doing his freelance work to help pay his rent and make sure that he stays in his apartment, Kyle decides to do what every responsible 20-something does. He goes clubbing. Thank goodness he's at least just going out to dance and not to pick up women. Uh, he's still faithful to Donna, which I think is really going to work for just a little while longer. Then on page 10, we get the introduction of Fatality. And wow, uh, again, uh, you know, I commented on uh, Pelletier's art uh, with drawing females, but Banks has got this girl going on. I mean... It could also be that she's dressed in, like I said, one of the most revealing club get-ups or club get-ups that I've seen. In fact, it's so amazing that uh, two of the guys who are there dancing along at the club are sitting there with their mouths open, staring at her. So, uh, yeah, she's she's really attractive. And then on page eleven, he even goes a little bit further with uh, her starting to dance with Kyle, and Kyle's just doing that typical sort of nineties white guy dancing, you know, moving his arms a little, but fatality is just, it, it's almost a Miley Cyrus level of uncomfortableness in this dance here, and Kyle is definitely uh, feeling it, because there's this one panel on page 11 where his eyes are really wide, and he's he's sweating as he's staring, obviously, at uh, fatality's chest, which is very uh, accessible, I guess. I don't have any real notes between the fight issue. The artwork's really good, and we get, uh, like I said, some stereotypical fight stuff. It's not until page 17 that I really want to have any notes, which is the sort of the origin of Fatality, where she mentioned that she's the last of her kind and that she has a real mad on for Green Lanterns. This will be important. Uh, her origin has something to do with something that Green Lanterns did to make her the last of her species page 18 panel one i like the artwork here on here because kyle has ringed up another shield to deflect one of the blasts that fatality is firing at him and this time rather than it being you know a dark star shield it's the face of a, a gray alien the stereotypical steven spielberg big-headed with the big saucer type eyes the sort of black eyes it's just kind of a neat aesthetic there um on the same page, panel three, I like the fact that there's a little continuity in the books. Fatality says that she was trained by the warlords of Okara, which is the same race that trains Starfire to fight. So there's a bit of continuity in the book, and I'm glad that Ron Mars is pulling from the DC universe and bring him into the Green Lantern book here. But then really my last note is on page 21 and this uh, fourth panel where John basically explains to Kyle, look, Fatality wasn't after you. She's after your lantern. And the look on Kyle's face is just great. Banks really nails the shocked look on him, and or the shocked look on his face. And it's a really good piece of artwork here in the issue. This is a nice setup to what's going to be going on in the next couple of issues. We're going to find out how Kyle is going to be able to deal with taking out Fatality and now having to get his lantern back. It looks like it's going to make for a really interesting next couple of issues. So I'm looking forward to rereading this stuff. Really fun. But that does it for the coverage of this book. I'm going to take a break, get a drink, and when I come back after these promos, I'll get into my coverage of the story from Detention Comics number one of one because it was a special.
Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics because, as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. A-Kids Comics, still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay, so what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones. Whoa, those things. Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much, I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. And we're back. And what you just listened to was a promo for the brand new podcast at the Two True Freaks website, Mike's Amazing World of DC History. Well, it's not brand new, but I think this may be one of the first times I played the promo on this show. Uh, Mike Voyles is not only the host of Mike's Amazing World of DC History, but he's the website developer for Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the one resource that I think all comic book podcasters use the most frequently to find out cover dates and information about books an amazing website plus mike is also the webmaster at the two true freaks website he's the one who pretty much set up the site got all of our podcasts over there got everything organized and everything and you know keeps the website up for the small pittance that we pay him if pittance could even be described as an amount of money that we pay him but mike's an amazing guy and he's covering essentially DC comics from the very beginning way before Superman way before Batman way before any of the characters that we know he's talking about more fun comics and new fun comics and just some interesting stuff if you want to know about golden age DC history this is the place to go check out his podcast but we're going to check out this part of the podcast Segway school again not paying off as we look into Detention Comics, a single-issue sort of special that came out in 1996. It was cover-dated October 1996 and released on or about July 14, 1996. It had a cover price of $3.50 US and $4.95 Canada. The story title for the Guy Gardner story was Home. The writer was Ruben Diaz, penciler was Joe Phillips, inker was Dexter Vines, colors was Scott Bowman, letterer was Chris Heliopoulos, and editor was Eddie Braganza. Our story opens with Guy Gardner walking through the halls of Hamilton High, reminiscing about his days as a youth there. Though the clothing styles have changed, one thing hasn't, and it's certain punk students harassing the teachers. But the difference time out is that some of the students are now metahumans, and Guy witnesses one of the bad ones tossing a teacher out of the classroom window. Guy carries the unconscious teacher to the chair and confronts the two metahuman menaces, saying that they're here to learn, not to fight. 
The kids give Guy some flack, and if it weren't for the interests of Principal Borgias, Guy would have given the thugs a taste of the Spank Ray. Prepare your hiney for another blast from the Spank Ray! No! Guy protests that he's not the man for this teaching job and the two should be doing time at Star Labs. Borgias disagrees, saying that she brought him here to get Guy's recommendation to the board to keep the school open, so Guy needs to make the best of it. At lunchtime, Guy runs into a female student named Juicer, who is busy defending some of the disabled kids from a female version of Jamie Madrix named Gangbang. Guy breaks up the fracas and asks Juicer what her deal is with defending the kids on crutches, when Juicer rebukes Guy and walks away. Admiring the girl Spunk, Guy hears from Principal Borges that Juicer was once a gangbanger who, during a gang conflict, ended up in a wheelchair but made a full recovery and turned her life around. She also reminds Guy to think about those students when he puts, his in, puts in his endorsement for the Board of Education. Meanwhile, the thugs from earlier are using their powers to cause mayhem in the parking lot. Drive by, the student with tread marks across his skull asks Gangbang and Hardcore what they're going to do about Juicer and the rest of the goody-goodies, and Hardcore comes up with the idea of having a little experiment with a container of gas. Back in class, Guy is teaching Superheroes 101 when the fire alarm goes off. Hurting the kids out of the building, Guy finds that the fire started in the gym, where Principal Borges was teaching girls basketball. Guy morphs up some never-before-seen armor and heads into the inferno, rescuing the principal by blasting his way out of the gym. Outside, the two assess the situation and find that Juicer isn't in with the rest of the students, which prompts Guy to head back in and find her. This is a good thing, since the three metas have her tied up and are letting Gangbang wail on her. Guy burst in, and the high school Fighty McFightenstein, starring Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudgens, and copyright Andrew Lee in the 2011 All Arts Deserve, breaks out as Guy nonlinkly makes the punk's day. Crisis averted, Guy checks up on the injured juicer, who he says has the makings of a true hero. Guy also says that despite the problems that the school has, he's willing to make sure that it stays open by poning up a donation to help renovate the school. The end. Now, if you haven't guessed it from my coverage, the entire idea behind this book is kind of a thinly veiled, yet enjoyable series of stories to promote staying in school. As I said before, the first story is written by Denny O'Neill and drawn by Norm Brayfogle, and it deals with Robin dealing with a kid whose parents, or especially his mom, is incredibly overprotective of him and basically a very haranguing, nagging person who is upset that her son isn't getting in on the football team and all this, and the wife eventually harangues her husband into essentially becoming what the Walter character from Breaking Bad and basically mixing up drugs in his basement to sell to kids. And it's a kind of heavy-handed anti-drug message by Denny O'Neill, and I guess you should sort of expect that with, you know, his writing on the Green Lantern books from that or from the early or from the mid '60s, but you know it's an enjoyable story, and Norm Brayfogle's art really helps sell it. Uh, and plus, Denny O'Neill gets the Robin character, the Tim Drake Robin, really well. The next story uh, teams up Ron Lim and Ron Mars again uh, from their not only from their Green Lantern days, but from uh, the, one of those stories in Green Lantern. I think it was. Uh, the Siege of Sea-Charam again. So they're back, and they're drawing Superboy. And from what I gather, Superboy is now hanging out in Hawaii. And uh, because he's a boy, he's supposed to be going to school, but he's skipping class in order to uh, hang out with some of the girls on the beach. And might I, I might say that uh, the girls on the beach are very well drawn by Mr. Lim. They are incredibly attractive, and have incredibly 90s uh, bikinis on as well. But essentially the story is Superboy gets taken in by his truant officer, a very Hawaiian-looking character, 
who knows how to get into the pants of women is not by being super and having amazing abilities and being able to fly and all the stuff that Superboy has. No, what really gets women to drop their panties is Shakespeare sonnets, as we see in the book, as this very husky man recites a bunch of Shakespeare sonics to the girls, and they're all doughy-eyed over him. Yeah, it's never worked for me. So, comic books. But obviously the Guy Gardner story was the one that I wanted to cover, and it was a pretty good one. Uh, I'll go ahead and start with my notes. Um, I might as well start with the cover, which you know incorporates all the characters on there, as we see Robin, Superboy, and uh, Guy Gardner falling out of a bus, and as the aforementioned uh, truant officer looks on, uh, it's some really nice art. It's uh, kind of cartoony style. I guess the character, I guess the guy who's drawing the cover is Joe Phillips and Dexter Vines is inking it. The best way I can describe the art is sort of a sort of a blending between Mike Parabek's sort of cartoony art and the more stylized uh, house art that DC was doing. You know, the Daryl Banks and George Perez and Phil Jimenez type stuff. It's some nice looking art and it's a it's a nice change for the book. Going into the Guy Gardner story, it starts on page 35, and we get introduced to our two male antagonists. One of them is a hoodie-wearing black teen with tire tracks on his head, and this is the guy named Drive-By. He has, I guess, kinetic powers and can fire energy beams. And the other one is a tattooed Quicksilver wannabe, and his name is uh, Hardcore, I believe. And his powers are kind of ill-defined. I guess he has a energy-absorbing power, where he can absorb certain amounts of energy and put it into a force field to protect him. Uh, it's not the most well-drawn-out characters, but seeing that we will probably never see these characters ever again in any comic is just a reason that we really don't need to pay all that much mind to what their powers are and actually who they are anyway. Page 36 is the two metas are giving Guy grief. I just have to wonder how teachers nowadays deal with students who are this obnoxious because it's the very stereotypical, oh, dangerous minds, stand and deliver type characters where the kids are just completely and utterly unruly. And now that the fact that these kids actually have superhuman powers makes it all the more difficult. And plus, they're also working the systems. Guy can't really do anything to take them out, even though they're using their powers, because that would get him in trouble with the Board of Education. So it's a it's a catch-22, and I admire teachers who take on the job of dealing with these inner-city students that are rambunctious and rebellious like this, because I know I couldn't do it. I have problems dealing with my kids, and they're nowhere as bad as the kids depicted in this book. Page 37, here we get the introduction of Elise Borges, who is the principal of the school, and I'm not certain, but she seems to have a tie with Guy. I don't know if she was a character in the uh, early Green Lantern books when Guy was uh, in there being a teacher, but she definitely has her hands full with this uh, school. And uh, as a good educator on this uh, page, she does want to give the kids the benefit of the doubt, especially when Guy suggests that they should be sent off to Star Labs. She knows that, yeah, they're troubled, and even though they might have metahuman abilities, being taken to Star Labs and being turned into lab rats isn't what they kids need. Page 39, we get the story on Juicer, who's the female character in here. She doesn't seem to have any meta abilities. She just seems to be a normal person, but she's standing up for kids with handicaps, which I think would really ingratiate her with Guy because Guy, during his run as a teacher, dealt with uh, kids with uh, special needs or disabled kids, as we saw in, oh, what was it, the Secret Origins Annual, I think number six or seven, that had uh, the Secret Origin Guy Gardner, so there you go with that. Page 40 here is just a sort of comedic panel here, I thought. As Guy is uh, Guy and the principal are in the lunchroom walking out, being a rowdy lunchroom, someone throws a tray of food, hoping to uh, hit the principal, and Guy just puts his hands up and deflects it. It's a nice little comedic move, just showing how cool Guy Gardner is. Page 41, again, 
to show how rebellious the group of metas are, both the males have decided to take off their shirts and show their ridiculous amount of tattoos and their finely toned abs. So, oh yeah, and their pants are lowriders as well. So, basically you're seeing the very stereotypical 90s punk characters. But on page 42, panel 5, the stereotypical punk characters go to stereotypical criminals as they decide to torch the entire school by basically dousing it with gasoline. Not good. Page 43, I would have loved to have gone to a school where one of the things they taught you in history was superhero history. I would have loved to just sat in a class and learned about, oh, the origin of Superman and his dealings with the Justice League and the JSA, and oh, that would have been so enjoyable. I I guess I'll just have to listen to some of John Wilson's podcast then. It's the next best thing. Page 44, panel 3. One of the kids leaving the building for the fire drill just looks kind of weird. In fact, his face looks kind of anime, which kind of takes me out of the book. It's everyone else on the panel has the sort of stereotypical style, but this one kid, I don't know. He, he looks like he's out of a Pokemon story or, or maybe out of something, a battle of the planets. It's just weird. He's got the big anime eyes where everyone else's eyes are pretty much normal. So weird composition there. I don't know if it was a character they were putting in there or what. Then on page 45, we get one of the things that Bo Smith warned about. When guys taken out of his book and used in other mediums, he gets ridiculous things happening to him. In fact, on this one panel, it's reminiscent of the thing as his face splits away from him and underneath there is sort of a blue cybernetic shell. It's really kind of creepy and weird. Uh, I don't know why... He's never shown this sort of morphing power again, so this is just... This is Diaz just going all out with the morphing powers and not really using them the way that I think they were supposed to be used. And then on page 46, as we see Guy transformed, it looks like rather than armoring up, he's changed into a weird blue and light blue tattooed Martian Manhunter clone because he's got the big sort of... Well, Martian Manhunter alien head that's sort of uh, cylindrical, and it's just weird. I don't know why they decided to do this, but yeah, there it is. Uh, This wouldn't happen under Bo Smith's pen. Page 48, panel 3, we get our blatant uh, patriotism here as the evil metahumans have Juicer tied up in a uh, crucifix pose on the wall with the American flag, so yeah, no symbolism there. And like I said before, on page 50, we get the power that Hardcore has as sort of an energy aura, which protects him and strengthens him. Like I said, probably not something that we're really going to have to worry about, because these characters are going to be gone in about, oh, two pages. And uh, about on time, on page 54, panel 3, after the fracas, Guy worries that all the harm that he and Juicer caused the kids would be a problem, but since the Metas decided to try and set the school on fire, they're now considered criminals, so really no harm, no foul. Uh, it was an enjoyable issue. The artwork was decent, but there are some really wonky things going on with Guy Gardner. Uh, luckily, I got this out of the dollar bin and really didn't pay all that. Well, obviously, I paid a dollar for it. It was an interesting book. Uh, like I said, the brief vocal art on the Denny O'Neill story with Robin was nice, and Ron Lim and Ron Mars teaming up to do the Superboy story was good. Overall, worth a dollar, but nothing really in the pantheon of Guy Gardner that you have to get. But it was a fun read anyway, so there you go. But speaking of fun reads, we're going to have a little bit of more of that next time out, as we're going to be covering, obviously... Greenlander number 84, which is the second part of the Fatality storyline, where we find out what's going to be going on with Kyle as he eventually loses his powers unless he gets his lantern back. 
We'll have to see if he can get the Lantern back from Fatality and what her whole connection and what her whole beef with the Green Lantern Corps is. And as a second book, I'm going to be covering a, a prestige format book that uh, came out around the time this book did. It's Wally West and Kyle Rayner teaming up with Alan Scott and Jay Garrick in Faster Friends. So it's a two-part storyline that we'll be covering over the next couple of weeks. But until then, I hope you guys enjoyed this issue or these issues, and I hope you come back next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a member of the Two True Freaks family of podcast. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys Podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Shonen Knife with their cover of the Ramones classic Rock and Roll High School. Now you can get this song from a myriad number of places, but the best place, as always, to get it is from Two True Freaks. How we can get it from Two True Freaks? Well, go to the website at twotruefreaks.com and then up in the left-hand corner, click on the banner to be directed to Amazon.com. Amazon.com will have your mp3 download for it, and plus you could probably buy the album that the song is off of. And if you're going through Amazon.com at the Two True Freaks website, a small amount of money from any purchase that you make at Amazon.com goes back to the Two True Freaks website to keep the shows on the air. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps us out. So whenever you think of buying anything, be it music, CDs, DVDs, electronics, or whatever your heart desires, make sure that you go through the link at twotruefreaks.com.